ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, politicians and news organisations united in fury as Facebook axes crucial funding for public interest journalism. Also, the Dunkley by-election is on tomorrow. What's at stake for the Prime Minister and Peter Dutton's hopes of taking back the suburbs? And our $5 note is set for a makeover. The Queen is being replaced. I love the Queen. I don't want her to come off. If she does, I think it should be Charles on there. I'm Aboriginal, so get her out of here as fast as possible. And it's a change that's been coming and it needs to happen already. Thanks for your company. The Albanese government faces an important test tomorrow as voters in the Melbourne seat of Dunkley cast their ballots in a federal by-election to determine who will succeed Labor MP Peter Murphy, who died of cancer last year. The result could indicate whether the cost of living crisis is fueling disenchantment with the Albanese government and whether Peter Dutton's Liberals are appealing to one of their major targets, outer suburban Victorian voters. Labor holds the seat by a margin of 6.3%, but some commentators are tipping a close contest. This report from Samantha Donovan. Nathan Conroy for the Liberal Party. More than a third of Dunkley voters have already cast their ballots in person or by post, and there was a steady stream of locals arriving at the Frankston early polling station today. While few will say who they're voting for, it's clear the cost of living is on the minds of many. Mortgages, electricity and gas are just skyrocketed. Food. On my mind, because I'm a mother, so I'm just... uh, concern about the increase in number of goods and groceries, increase in of vegetables, fruits, very high prices. Big things are cost of living, um, things are just getting out of control, prices of food. May I ask you, what did you make of the tax cut debate, the, the Labor Party deciding to change their approach? Yeah, that was OK, but there's so many other Labor things that I, I just can't understand. I, I don't know how much money the that the whole referendum cost, they could have paid for a lot of things. For some voters, health care is a big concern. Well, the big issues were about uh, that we're paying out of pocket uh, for the, seeing the GPs now. No longer affordable for a lot of people in this area. This Labor government doesn't care about health care. It's really important that they focus on health care and don't just cut funding to sectors like community pharmacy, the GPs as well. The Liberal Party and Conservative lobby group Advance Australia have been urging voters not to support Labor if they're concerned about crime in the electorate. But that call didn't seem to be resonating with these voters. I'm not scared to walk in the dark, walk to the park at night, nothing, no. I didn't know there was more crime in Frankston. I just thought crime was a worldwide thing everywhere. I lived in Brighton before I came down here and I was robbed so many times. Here here I go out and move the door open. Both the opposition leader and the Prime Minister visited the Dunkley electorate today. Peter Dutton urged voters to back the Liberal candidate, Nathan Conroy. There is a lot weighing up on people's minds at the moment. They know that they can't change the government with their vote tomorrow. They do know that they can send a message to a weak Prime Minister and a Prime Minister who's made decisions in two budgets, which has really made it hard for families. Uh, It's made it incredibly difficult for people on fixed incomes and there are a lot of families here 
in Dunkley, but across the country who are struggling at the moment. I think the people of Dunkley can send a message, not just on their own behalf, but on behalf of millions of Australians who don't believe that this Prime Minister is up to the task and who believe that he has let them down. There are many families who continue to struggle under the Albanese government. The Prime Minister promised a reduction in electricity prices of $275. He promised it on 100 occasions. And people know that not only have they not got a cut to their electricity bills, but their electricity and gas bills continue to go up and up under this government. Uh, so I think it's a very important by-election uh, and we're going to fight tooth and nail. And Anthony Albanese was asking people to give their support to the Labor candidate, Jody Bellier. Uh, Jody Bellier is someone who is not a career politician. She's a local mum. Her son's doing the HSC at Frankston High School. She's someone who was recruited to the Labor Party by the late Peter Murphy. Peter Murphy was an extraordinary champion of this local community. Aspiration is something that all Australian families have. People want and aspire to something better for their kids. That's what it's about. This by-election is an opportunity to send another local champion to Canberra and Jody Bellier. The late Labor member Peter Murphy first won the seat at the 2019 election. She was re-elected in 2022 with an increased margin of 6.3%. She was on the mind of this voter today. Not only the genuine care factor that she brought to the table, but she was always, no matter what she was going through, she came in with a smile and was always there trying to help people. After the death of Peter Murphy from cancer last December, there was more sad news for the Australian Labor Party today with the passing of Victorian Senator Linda White. The lawyer and former union official was elected to the Upper House in 2022. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, described her as a beloved friend and a formidable and valued colleague who is a devout supporter of working Australians. Samantha Donovan there. So what's the view from Canberra? For more on the implications of this by-election, our National Affairs Editor, Melissa Clark, is in our Parliament House Bureau. Mel, what's at stake here for the Albanese government? Well, for Labor, this by-election is something of a, a mid-term temperature check. You know, the Labor Party is in the middle of a, a, something of a reset. It's trying to put the voice referendum loss behind it and trying to focus on the rejigged Stage 3 tax cuts as something of a, a fresh start. But Labor is pretty politically vulnerable here. There are a lot of long-running issues around things like housing affordability and availability, general cost of living and crime that it, it needs to confront and will do so in this by-election. You know, if Labor comes close to losing the seat or if it actually loses it, it will force a, a bigger shake-up, certainly a new policy approach and, and possibly even a, a front-bench reshuffle. So considering all that, is, is limping over the line enough for the government or would a narrow victory still be seen as a loss considering the size of the margin? Well, if Labor hold the seat, they'll say a win is a win is a win. Mm. But in politics, not all wins are equal. If they lose the seat, clearly that would be disastrous for Labor. That would mean a massive swing against them and it would likely be regarded as an endorsement of the message that the Liberal Party is prosecuting here, which is that Labor doesn't have the answers to the challenges facing the community. Winning the seat by a narrow margin, clearly better than losing a seat, but barely hanging on to Dunkley would significantly dent Labor's confidence. The rejig stage three tax cuts were a big gamble by Anthony Albanese. It was breaking an election promise to show that the Labor Party was willing to act 
to address the cost of living crisis. And if it doesn't deliver an electoral dividend, it's possible Labor will just become far more cautious with its policy changes. And, and that doesn't bode well for addressing the, the big issues of cost of living and housing. So limping over the line isn't really a win for Labor. Ultimately, Labor probably needs a swing of less than three or four percent against it to feel comfortable with the outcome and take that as a as a public endorsement of, of the direction they're heading in. So flipping things around, I mean, there's pressure here for Peter Dutton as well, isn't there, considering that he really needs to win seats like Dunkley if he has any hope of victory at the next election? I think in some ways the stakes for Peter Dutton are even higher than that for Anthony Albanese because his plan to return the coalition to government absolutely relies on winning seats like Dunkley, seats that are in the outer suburbs, that are predominantly working class and middle class and mostly families. And, and that's Dunkley to a T, with the exception of perhaps the, the little bit of Mount Eliza on the southern end. You know, uh, Dutton has chosen to focus on this demographic rather than the inner city seats lost to the Teals, which has much more high and middle income earners and, and larger clusters of young renters. Uh, I think it's also really important to note that the Liberal Party needs to be able to win seats in Victoria. Uh, mm. The Liberals only have three seats in metropolitan Melbourne, Menzies, Deakin and Aston, maybe four if you count Flinders on the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, so these are the kinds of seats that Peter Dutton needs to win. Uh, the policy proposals he's bringing in this campaign uh, are pretty light on detail. It's focused largely on criticism of the incumbent when it comes to dealing with cost of living and crime. So if Peter Dutton can't come close to winning this seat, it shows that approach isn't working. And if he's going to have another shot of getting back to government, he'll have to have a very big recalibration. Melissa Clark in Canberra there. The federal government is headed for a major battle with one of the world's biggest and most powerful tech giants. Facebook's parent company, Meta, says it won't be renewing any of the deals it struck three years ago to support public interest journalism. That could mean the loss of hundreds of journalist jobs and the closure of entire newsrooms with regional Australia at most risk. The Prime Minister says it's untenable, not the Australian way, but beyond angry words, what can the government do about it? Elizabeth Cramsey reports. If we need a reminder of how tough Facebook is willing to play in negotiations, we need only look at the 18th of February 2021, when Australians woke up to find the social media giant had blocked all access to news sites on its platform, along with a bunch of other important sites. The news went global. Facebook is fighting back against the Australian government, which wants to force the company to pay online publishers. The social media giant says it's restricting publishers and users in the country from sharing. This follows a fight with the Australian government, which wants... The standoff eventually cooled down when the federal government introduced the News Media Bargaining Code, legislation that meant tech giants need to pay Australian news outlets for the news shown on their platforms. As a result, Google and Meta, the company that owns Facebook, signed lucrative deals with the majority of Australia's major media players. Former ACCC chair Rod Sims was instrumental in designing that legislation. The deal was that if they did not want to be designated, then they would go out and do deals with media companies and both Google and Facebook did that. The result was close to $250 million a year. But now it looks like another battle is brewing. Those contracts are about to expire and today Meta announced it wouldn't be renewing them. 
Rod Sims says it's bad news. It means their content may well continue to get used without any payment to them or alternatively they'll block news content completely so that there'll be no trusted news on their on the Facebook platform. Uh, either of those outcomes is a dreadful outcome. And it's bad news for society too. Social media companies are seeking content that's a bit more extreme, that engages people more so that they stay on their platform more and they make more money. The trouble with that approach is it tends to polarise society and disrupt society rather than what you get when people have news from trusted news sources, which means you've got a common set of information and a common basis for discussion of issues. So moving away from trusted news, as Meta has indicated today, is very worrying in terms of our democracy. He expects the government to get involved. Now, the legislation as drawn up would indicate designation needs to happen, but if I was the government, I'd be consulting, particularly with the media industry, to determine the appropriate next step. But what would it mean to designate Meta? Dr Belinda Barnett is a senior lecturer in media and communications at Swinburne University. Because the platforms weren't named or designated in the legislation, it means that it's not actually enforceable in court and it can't trigger arbitration in the way it was designed to. Meta says it's seen an 80% drop in the number of people accessing Facebook news in Australia. Dr Barnett says there could be multiple reasons for that. I think a very big contributing factor is that they have actually changed their algorithms so that it doesn't make news more prominent. And in fact, Twitter X, sorry, has done the same thing, particularly since Musk took over. So Facebook and meta products have taken a strategic direction in the last couple of years to kind of downplay the prominence of news. Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones says the government is committed to finding a way forward. Uh, there are steps required to be followed by me under the news media bargaining code, and I intend to follow them to the T. Uh, but nobody should be under any doubt about the government's resolve to ensure that we have a viable media industry in this country and the spirit uh, that lies behind the news media bargaining code is fulfilled. So what does this mean for news organisations? The funding allowed the ABC to hire 60 regional journalists and expand to 10 new regional locations. It's not the only one. Harry Clark is the founder and editor of Country Caller, an online news service advocating for rural and regional Queensland. He's anxious to see what Meta's decision means for his team. Absolutely. Country Caller has benefited greatly from the Meta Australian News Fund. And if a program like that is going to discontinue, which I assume it will if they're no longer going to be doing deals with the mainstreams, then that'll be a huge blow to our operations because essentially it employs two regional journalists on a casual basis. So without that funding, they're going to go. Harry Clark there, the editor of news site Country Caller, Elizabeth Cramsey reporting. You're listening to PM. I'm David Lipson. Don't forget, all of our programs can be heard on the ABC Listen app. After almost five months of war in Gaza, which has now seen more than 30,000 Palestinians killed, it's been getting harder to be shocked by the daily news feed of death and destruction. But footage of thousands of hungry Palestinians swarming over aid trucks, 
before Israeli troops opened fire has reverberated across the world. Accounts of exactly what happened differ, but Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry says 112 people were killed and 760 injured in the chaos. Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong says she's horrified by the catastrophe and has instructed her department to express Australia's views directly to the Israeli ambassador. Professor Bob Bowker is a former Australian ambassador to Jordan, Egypt and Syria. He's now with the Centre for Arab and Islamic Studies at the Australian National University. Professor Bob Bowker, thanks for being with us. What does this terrible incident tell us about the level of desperation in Gaza now and the state of law and order? Well, I think it's compelling evidence that the delivery of uh, humanitarian assistance needs to be conducted through the United Nations. The situation is clearly dire. Malnutrition, dehydration and the simple risk of starvation now confronting the adult population uh, makes it a, a cataclysmic situation requiring urgent humanitarian intervention. You say that we need to get the United Nations involved again in the delivery of humanitarian aid, funding from Australia, the United States and others to the UN Relief Agency, UNRWA, is still paused over allegations that UNRWA workers took part in the October 7 attacks on Israel. Are you saying that this aid convoy tragedy wouldn't have happened if UNRWA was still making those aid runs? I'm quite sure that if UNRWA or any other UN agency had been responsible for delivering the aid, they would have ensured that there was appropriate security provided by the Palestinian uh, authorities to see that that aid reached its destination. I think we need to be more vocal in defending UNRWA. We certainly should be releasing the funding that was promised to it and we should push back very hard against claims by Israel and others that UNRWA has no place in the future of Gaza. And should that happen before the investigation is concluded? The Israelis have had ample time to provide the evidence to substantiate their allegations. So far, none of it has been provided in writing to the United Nations. Uh, and I think that we can call time on this. I think it's time to go back to uh, providing the uh, what is essential, which is humanitarian relief to a population that is simply at risk now of, of starvation. There is this constant stream of awful news coming out of Gaza, but images of hungry people swarming aid trucks being run over, trampled, possibly shot by Israeli soldiers are very powerful, quite aside from, from the tragedy of, of the event itself. Do you think this has the potential to be a turning point in terms of public sentiment toward Israel, which continues to claim it's acting in self-defence? I think beyond Israel's borders, there is very little sympathy now for anybody who takes an objective approach to uh, what has happened since the 7th of October to be able to say that Israel has responded in a proportionate way and a legitimate way uh, in terms of its own defence. Uh, we are now seeing a situation which, through their pursuit, I think an illusory pursuit of the destruction of Hamas, uh, we are instead seeing the collective punishment of, an, of a Palestinian population that is highly vulnerable, uh, that had no part in the tragic events, the despicable events of the 7th of October, but who, uh, as a, a concerned middle power, Australia should be you know, seeking to defend. 
we, at the same time, haven't heard so much about what Hamas is doing now. They are still very active. What are the Hamas militants up to in, in Gaza? Because they're not just hiding out, are they? No, uh, they have been pursuing uh, counter-offensives against the Israelis in isolated areas uh, in, in parts of uh, northern Gaza, for example. Uh, the fact that the Israelis are still having to uh, conduct quite intensive campaigns in the southern part of Gaza also is a fair indication that uh, Hamas has not lost the will to fight or the ability to fight, even though it is clearly being degraded. The US President Joe Biden is concerned that this incident will complicate efforts to broker a temporary ceasefire. What's your view on that? The fact that a, that 100 people are being killed it has to be put in context. We have 30,000 people who have been killed in this conflict over the last four months. So one day's tragic events probably don't have a lot of impact on those who are around the negotiating table. On the other hand, I have no doubt that Hamas will exploit this situation to insists that the ceasefire must come and be more durable than that which the Americans and others are, are proposing. And I would also expect Hamas uh, to win the media war that this imagery, of course, presents to them. Professor Bob Bowker, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. And Bob Bowker is from the Australian National University. Now to a bit of an economic conundrum. How is it that the share and property markets continue to hit record highs at a time when the Treasurer is warning us about quite weak economic growth. Today, the stock market closed at an all-time high, and in February, national home prices reached a fresh peak as well. The question is, what happens to shares and property if the economy hits the skids? Here's David Taylor. Veteran share market investor Marcus Padley doesn't spend too much time worrying about the economy day to day. We wake up every morning, look at what's happening and make decisions. That's the best you can do. And for the moment, the market looks absolutely fine. You could argue it looks better than fine. Today, the Australian stock market closed at an all-time high, led by the big banks, miners and tech companies. So we're just catching the wash, the backwash of technology. We're also seeing the bank sector has really enjoyed the uh, change in attitude towards interest rates since the Fed meeting back in November when everybody assumed we've uh, seen peak rates and the bank sector has rather enjoyed that. The Australian property market is also pushing higher. According to property analysis firm CoreLogic, home values rose 0.6% in February, with increases in every capital city except Hobart. This, says Head of Residential Research Eliza Owen, has pushed the market to a fresh record high. And it's interesting to see that some of the weaker markets, like Sydney and Melbourne, which were showing signs of decline late last year, have also picked up Melbourne up 0.1% in the month and Sydney up 0.5%. Eliza Owen says investors are confident inflation and interest rates are on their way down later this year and that's buoying asset markets. So it looks as if some certainty around inflation coming down and interest rates holding has helped market confidence and has helped to uh, create that uplift in values through the start of 2024. But the economy's staring down some rather large threats. Speaking at the G20 summit this week, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, saw fit to warn Australians of the potential for quite weak growth. 
While seasoned share trader Marcus Padley's not paying too much attention to economic predictions, which could be wrong, he concedes he's concerned about the health of China's economy. There is a real vulnerability that we have to a Chinese economic malaise, which looks like it's coming. If the Chinese don't stimulate, their economy is, is on the slide. If the Chinese economy goes on the slide, it's a real risk to uh, our biggest resources stocks. That's a real risk to the Australian tax take, our economy and to the currency. We have one of the major banks predicting the Aussie dollar going to 40 cents, can you believe, uh, if you see the Chinese economy uh, fail to kick from here. And he says while the share and property market all-time highs can be explained, there's always the potential for an economic shock to send the markets falling again. So it could easily fall over. You certainly can't say it's up and up forever. AMP's chief economist Shane Oliver follows both investment markets and the economy closely. He points to the potential for lower interest rates later this year. You can sort of explain why we do have this divergence between those two key asset markets and uh, the economy. Who's most at risk for, for a sort of a downturn in the share market? Well, I, I guess it depends on how you look at it. Obviously, investors are most at risk, and of course, that's ordinary mum and dad investors who might have had their savings in the share market uh, to some degree via their superannuation. Those uh, close to retirement or in retirement, uh, obviously, would suffer a loss of wealth if their superannuation investments were to go down. And he says younger Australians and investors with a very long-term investment strategy need not worry about short-term volatility in financial markets. Property ownership, however, is a different story. David Taylor there. Well, how many people on our money can you name? Hopefully the Queen. The Queen has been on our $5 note since 1992 and the Reserve Bank says... She will not be replaced by King Charles. Instead, the bank is launching a public campaign to source ideas that reflect Australia's First Nations cultures. Here's Alison Chow. It's a classic quiz night question. Whose faces are on our money? In Sydney, not everyone can remember. Queen Elizabeth? I'm not too sure. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I don't know. Isn't it the Aboriginal man? I think it's Caroline Chisholm. When Queen Elizabeth died, the Reserve Bank had an opportunity to reassess who was on the $5 note. Coins featuring King Charles are slowly being rolled out, but the new monarch will not replace his mother on the fiver. Opinion on that decision is divided. I think she should be kept on it because of, you know, what she's done. I'm Aboriginal, so get her out of here as fast as possible. <laughs> because she's been a monarch for so long, I can't understand why they would take her off. Because to me, it's like a legacy thing. Take her off tomorrow. Uh, I don't care. I have no connection to Queen whatsoever. I love the Queen. I don't want her to come off. If she does, I think it should be Charles on there because we are still part of the Commonwealth. Instead, a design honouring Indigenous Australians will take her place. It's not going to be a specific person. The Reserve Bank says it could be a place, a story or an object. It's launched a campaign to gather ideas on how to reflect First Nations cultures on the note. Michelle McPhee is the Assistant Governor of Business Services at the Reserve Bank. We're looking for images. We're not looking for portraits. It could be an idea. It could be a cultural story. It could be a flora and fauna. But this is the first time that we've actually conducted a public process where we're looking for um, ideas from the Australian people. Brett Levy is a descendant of the Cooma people in Queensland. 
His artwork was projected on the sales of the Sydney Opera House on Australia Day this year. He says the change is a good idea, but not necessarily groundbreaking. It's an important step. I wouldn't say it's a great step, but it's just something. It's, this $5 note change does not answer cost of living pressures. But he says depicting an object or place rather than a portrait would resonate with many First Nations people. Any symbol that respectfully honours other Earth in that regard is probably a good way. The question then becomes, what is the design? That can, in a sense, represent all First Nations people across the board? And that's a really hard question. The Reserve Bank says it's working with First Nations organisations to encourage submissions. Once a theme is selected, Indigenous artists will be invited to submit a design. Dungaddy artist and Archibald Prize winner Black Douglas says he wants transparency on who those Indigenous artists will be. It concerns me about who calls the shots in terms of the selection committee and which artists are selected on behalf of which nations. My further concern is that we will end up with your stereotypical appeasing dot-painted or cross-hatched designs. Stephen Pryor from the International Banknote Society is what's known as a numismatist. That means he studies and collects coins and cash. He feels removing the monarch from our notes is a historic change. The monarch has appeared on all of our notes since 1923. Our currency represents who we are and what we are, and it's our face to the world. The only thing that will happen is there will be a subset of collectors who collect royal portraits who will therefore not be collecting this note. That's a fairly small subset, but significant anyway. But ultimately, for the everyday Australian, whatever ends up on the new $5 design might not get a lot of FaceTime in our wallets. Do you ever even have a $5 note on you? No, I don't remember the last time I had cash on me. (laughs) I don't. I mean, who carries the money these days anyway? I don't think a lot of people carry cash. The Reserve Bank says the new $5 note will take a number of years to be designed and issued. Alison Shaw there. That's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Sparks. Technical production by Lena El Sadi, David Sargent. I'm David Lipson. Good night.